Good? Good, okay, good morning. Uh, my name is Caitlin. I have been at Blacknall for about a year and a half now. Um, I moved here a year and a half ago to begin my doctorate at the Divinity School. Um, and I moved here from Dallas, Texas, where I did um, a Master of Theology there. And I have just loved being a part of the community at Blacknall. And I'm glad that Becky gave me the opportunity and Tracy to introduce myself because I actually thought I would begin because I know some of you, but not all of you, and you all don't know me very well that I would begin by telling you that it's important for you to know that I have a history with this text we are reading today. Um, when I was a few years into seminary in Dallas, at Dallas Seminary, I was working on staff at a church with young adult women, and they asked me to participate in something very much like this. We were team teaching women's Bible study in the morning, and we were going through Genesis. And so I'm like so excited with all of my seminary, my two years of seminary knowledge, and I go to the training for the teachers, and I walk into the room, and I've been at this church for a few years now, and I suddenly realize I'm the youngest teacher in the room by, like, a lot. <laughs> and I was so intimidated, because I knew most of these women, and they were wise and faithful, and they had all this experience in life and teaching the Bible, and so I was so nervous. And I get to the back, I sit way in the back, I'm like, I'm not important, I'm very scared, taking notes. And the teacher who's leading the teacher training says, pulls out a clipboard and says, we're going to sign up today for the passages that we're going to read. And so I'm in the back, so I already know, like counting passages, I'm, I'm going to get whatever's left. Like that's all I'm going to have. And again, I'm so scared. And the, the, the clipboard gets to me, and the last available slot just says Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> and I was horrified. I was like, this is terrible. I mean, I was scared just about my ability to teach it, but I also thought, this is not a good story. Like, I don't like this. It's not exciting. I don't want to teach it. And I begin with that not to prepare you for really bad things, but because that experience actually became a really part, a really important part of my seminary experience. It was one time among many that I looked at a passage in scripture and thought, this is not good news. And when I really dove into it, when I read commentaries and asked professors questions and, and prayed about it and asked people in my community about it, every single time I discovered it was better than I thought and that God was better than I thought. And so I'm actually really excited to talk about this today, even though it's kind of a strange story. It's weird to tell people how much I love Sodom and Gomorrah, but I do. And there's so much. You all know, especially if you've done the homework, there's like four chapters. There's a lot going on. I'm going to skip a lot of details. And I'm actually going to skip all of chapter 17. So go and read that. It's very important. Circumcision, covenant, important. But I'm going to focus on chapters 18, 19, and 20, because I think this is a pretty clear unit. And I think we actually miss some important things in our understanding of these three stories. So that's just for simplicity's sake how we're gonna talk about it. Three stories. The story of the three visitors in chapter 18. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19. And the story of Abimelech in chapter 20. And across these three stories, we're gonna see two themes that unite them. First, the importance of hospitality. And second, the way fear crowds out blessing. So first, the story of the three visitors. Again, not getting into all the details, we don't know exactly who these three visitors are, but the text does make clear that at the very least, they're messengers sent from God. At the most, they might be God. And Jen talks in her teaching, if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, I would recommend it. She really focuses on, in the covenant and in these stories, Sarah and Abraham's promise from God to have a child, the importance of childbirth for continuing the covenant, 
Um, and that's really important. I think that that's a story that we know pretty well. And so I'm focusing on a part of these stories that I think we might be less familiar with. But there's also something really important going on with these three, three visitors besides this promise. We are pretty distanced from this cultural and historical context that I think we might miss part of what's going on here. So the very beginning, the three visitors show up and we might read how Abraham responds, which in verse four, he says, let a little water be brought and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree, kind of low promise, and then it balloons. He goes and tells Sarah, get three seahs of the finest flour, knead it, bake some bread. He goes to the herd and selects a choice tender calf and gives it to a servant to prepare it. He brings curds and milk and they sit under a tree. It's like this lavish picnic. And we might read this and think, Abraham must recognize these people, or, or they, he must discern that they're important, right? Who's gonna treat strangers like this? But I think what we miss is how centrally important hospitality is for their culture. This isn't just the hospitality that we think of where we imagine being like really good guests or really good hosts to our guests, that we invite people we love into our home and have a beautiful table and make beautiful food. That is so good. But in this context, hospitality was so important not only as a gift to other people, but as a form of protection and provision. These travelers were foreigners to the area, which means they had no protection from being abused or taken advantage of. There were no international laws assuring that they would be taken care of, that they were safe. So hospitality was highly valued in this cultural context, and it was even more highly valued in scripture. It was commanded by God. In Leviticus 19.34, it says, the stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you and you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This is one example, but over and over again in the law, it adds to laws about how you treat fellow Israelites. It'll just have a little thing tacked on at the end, and also to foreigners. Even when it comes to festivals and sacrifices, it talks about like, what do you do with foreigners? It says this so often because it was not expected at the time, and it's not really expected in our time, that you treated outsiders like you treat your own. But God says over and over again to his people, you were foreigners in Egypt, you were mistreated, and I brought you out. So you treat foreigners like one of your own. So in this story, we see that even before the law, even before the flight from Egypt, this is true of the people of God. They're supposed to treat foreigners well. So that's the first story, three visitors. Second story in chapter 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. Before we even get to chapter 19, the visitors get up to leave for Sodom. God decides to have a conversation with Abraham about the destruction coming to Sodom. This is a strange story because it sounds like Abraham is bargaining with God in a really repetitive and annoying way. <laughs> like, don't you just wish he could get, like, get to the last question? Like, what are all these other ones? But rather than bargaining with God, I think we see two things here. First, we see a description of God bringing Abraham into further relationship with him and inviting Abraham to think about God's justice and mercy. God does not need to consult Abraham. He's not persuaded by Abraham's pleading, like Abraham told him something he didn't already know. God's all-knowing, does not change. But God does condescend to us, does invite us into his work in the world. Secondly, we see something crucial about Abraham and about the people of God that I really hope that as we continue through Genesis, which I'm doing with you, that we won't forget this really important thing. I want to quickly bring us back to chapter 12. 
the very start of this story. This is the first conversation between God and Abraham, the beginning of this people, this nation, this relationship. In verse 2, it says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. We're pretty familiar with that part. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Here we have a reminder that God's redemptive plan is for the nations from the beginning, and that God's people have always been oriented towards the good of the nations. Abraham is petitioning for Sodom, yes, potentially because Lot, his nephew, is there, but Lot doesn't play any role in this conversation. He's not saying, like, please save Lot. He's petitioning for this foreign country that is not party to the covenant. He remembers what God said. You are supposed to bring blessing to the nations. The next part of Sodom's story will move us from this truth, that God's redemptive plan is not just for the people of God, but for the nations, for it to move beyond them, into a difficult question that that leaves for us. What does it look like to live in the nations, to live among unrighteousness? So we move into Sodom, and in the first verse of chapter 19, it says, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. It's like, dun, dun, dun. This is not good already, right off the bat. When we last saw Lot, he was like inching in this direction. When we get here, he's at the center of everything going on. If we don't remember exactly, Lot is Abraham's nephew, and we saw a few chapters before, this is in chapter 13, that they had been traveling together and they separate because of conflict over land and cattle, right? They're trying to figure out how can we keep our great wealth together. And it says in verse 10 of chapter 13, Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. And then I love the narrator says next in verse 10, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> you already have a sense that Lot is not a very good judge of what is good. So we see Lot right in the center gate, a site of prominence integrated socially into the city. The visitors come, Lot invites them in, they kind of have a fight about this, he's very clear he needs to protect them. Remember our parallel story of hospitality right before. Lot and Abraham exhibit some serious similarities across these three stories, one of them being hospitality to strangers. So he invites them in, and then things get really bad. In verse 4 it says, Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. And so here we have the perfect explanation of why hospitality for foreigners was so important. Without Lot's offer of protection, these travelers are vulnerable to the abuse of the men of Sodom. But for all of Lot's valiant protection of his visitors, he then goes horribly wrong. He offers up his daughters as a substitute. There is a crowd of men threatening sexual assaults. Let's be clear, this is violence that they are threatening outside the door. And Lot says in verse 7, no, my, fr my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. Lot is afraid of the crowd. He's afraid of offending his visitors, his male visitors, that he has a cultural reason to extend hospitality. He has a high value. He's afraid of not being a good host. He's afraid of his own safety. 
and he's willing to sacrifice the physical safety and emotional well-being of his daughters to keep him and his guests safe. It's a horrible picture of using people as tools for your own gain instead of as human beings, instead of as people made in the image of God. This is a story we see all throughout Genesis, especially with women. We see it throughout history, and we see it today. And later in the story, we'll learn that Lot's daughters learned something from him, how to use people as tools for their own ends, not as people. Abuse and, and exploitation proliferate in these stories, and as God reminded Noah back in chapter 9, at the root of all of it is not recognizing people as made in the image of God. So the visitors step in, they provide a way out for the city of Lot, out of the city for Lot and his family. Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, and in verse 23 it says, By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. There's a lot going on here, including the verse you might have noticed I didn't read about Lot as wife and the salt, and you guys can figure that out in your groups. Um, but I'm going to focus on one really important question here. I think the Lot's wife thing is interesting, but I also think it can distract us from some really important things going on here. What is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Most of us think we know the answer. We primarily associate Sodom and Gomorrah with sexual sin, and there's good reason for that. But here's why I want us to focus on this question. For one thing, I think the answer helps us understand the like, unit of these three stories better. But more importantly, I worry that we, and by we I mean Blacknall, the American church, I definitely mean me, I worry that we have a tendency to read scripture looking for judgment against sins that don't affect us. It is so much easier to see sin in scripture and think, I have a friend who really needs to hear this. <laughs> Or to hear God's judgment against specific sins and subconsciously think, ah, oh, yes, the sin I don't struggle with at all is very bad. Yeah. Or, good thing I'm not like those people. Or, wow, look at how I can use this verse as a weapon against people or things I don't like. So let's ask it seriously. What was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Here's what we know from elsewhere in the Bible. Lots of passages reference Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old and New Testament. It's usually as a reference point. A story to remind people that God judges sin harshly. Sodom and Gomorrah are, are referenced frequently as a comparison, especially for the people of God. You're as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. You're sinning as just as bad as them. You will be judged worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. But really, only a couple of times in Scripture does it say what their sin was. Our text here in chapter 19 says there was an outcry against them, that their sin was grievous. The story of the visitors tells us they were violently sexually immoral. So there's two times, once in the New Testament and once in the Old Testament, that explicitly tells us why does Sodom become this huge paradigmatic example of sin and judgment. In Jude 7, it says, they gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. And this is not news to us. We read the story. We know this is true. But then there's a passage we don't talk about very often. It's in Ezekiel 16, verse 49. This passage is again comparing Sodom to Jerusalem. It's comparing Jerusalem to her mother, her father, her sisters, all of these other nations around her that have done detestable things in the way she is following in step. 
So in Ezekiel 16, verse 49, it says, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. It's like a really nice answer to my question. <laughs> this was the sin. Here's your answer, Caitlin. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. Now, we might not have identified with Sodom very much before. Their sin seemed kind of foreign to us, violent, intense, and that part's not even true. Sexual assault is something that affects most communities today as well, but it did seem just too much, right? But here is a description of sin we should be very concerned about. When God compares the people of God to Sodom, this is what he says they have in common. They were arrogant, they were overfed, and unconcerned. Basically, they had more than they needed, and they still did not help the poor. Joshua Jipp, who's a New Testament professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, says people think they already know the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, so we just kind of rush right past it. But when you read it in the context of the story right before it about hospitality to foreigners, and the story right after it, which we'll get to in a minute, about hospitality to foreigners, you'll see that it shows that God will judge societies and individuals that abuse the vulnerable. Trumper Longman, an Old Testament professor, says something very similar. He actually says it pretty strongly. He says, this shows that God judges nations by how they treat foreigners. There's one more thing I don't want us to miss before we move into the final story. It says in verse 25 that I just read, that the people were destroyed and also the vegetation in the land. It's a weird thing to comment on, like to specifically say the vegetation is destroyed, but remember what we heard in chapter 13. Lot went to that area because the land looked good. He saw that the area was well watered. He thought it was like Eden. It turns out Lot is a bad judge of what is truly good. While Abraham chose the land God had given him, Lot chose what looked good to him. What looks like prosperity can lead to destruction, just like the well-fed and unconcerned Sodomites. Okay, the final story, very quickly. Chapter 20. Abraham and Sarah move on to Gerar, and they pull the same little sideshow all over again. Abraham has not only just had God reaffirm his promise to make him a great nation through Sarah, he has seen right in front of his face the judgment of sin that is coming to people who sin against God. And yet... When he enters this new region, he decides once again to take things into his own hands. It says in, in chapter 20, Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. We don't even get an explanation in this version of the story of why he's doing it, because at this point we just kind of know what's going on, right? We saw in chapter 12, Abraham was afraid he would be mistreated by foreign peoples. Again, we've established a, a real fear in this context. But then, because of his fear, he makes Sarah vulnerable so that he can be safe. I think, again, it's important that we not kind of gloss over the details here. When he has Sarah in a position to be handed over to a king, this isn't like modern dating. It's not like she can just go around the city as a single lady and then a king can come by and woo her. Like, no, she's just at the mercy of this ruler. And at this time, women really relied on either their father or their husband to provide physical safety for them, sexual safety for them. And Abraham makes her vulnerable so that he can be safe. He puts God's promise in jeopardy, and he puts his own wife in a vulnerable position. 
This is one of the connections I think it's important for us to see between these stories. Just as Lot is willing to sacrifice his daughters because of his fear and his desire for safety, Abraham is willing to sacrifice Sarah because of his fear and his desire for safety. Which leads to an uncomfortable question, I think, for us, already thinking about the sin of Sodom and the ways that it could implicate us. Who are we willing to sacrifice because of our fear? Who are we willing to make vulnerable so that we can be safe? And then here's the second connection. As this happens, God comes to Abimelech in a dream, which just seems like we're just like, God does that. God comes to people in dreams. At this point in the story, God is coming to a foreign king in a dream. This is a big deal. God comes and says in verse 3, you are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Then Abimelech says something that sounds a lot like Abraham said earlier when he said, are you not a just God? Are you going to destroy Sodom if there's any righteous people in it? Abimelech assumes God's justice too and says, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did, she not say, did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God says to him, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning. He tells Abimelech to return Abraham's wife, for he is a prophet. And if he doesn't return her, he will die, including the people who belong to him. So the next morning, Abimelech summons his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, it says in verse 8, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech calls Abraham in and questions him, and in verse 10, he finally asks, what was your reason for doing this? Strangely enough, in this story, it is Abimelech who comes across more righteous. He questions Abraham. He proclaims his innocence. He recognizes that what he did was wrong, and if he had known all the facts, he wouldn't have done it, which again, at this time, the idea that a king would be like, oh no, she's your wife, like I want, that's surprising. And then Abraham's answer to his question in verse 11 is, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Abraham says, surely there is no fear of God in this place. And a few verses before I just read, Abimelech summoned his officials, and they were very much afraid. Abraham has misjudged this foreign people. They have acted righteously, and he has acted wickedly. Abimelech shows he's very moral, more than Pharaoh. Pharaoh just kind of kicked them out the last time this happened. Abimelech gives them all of this reparations. He clears Sarah's name publicly. He goes above and beyond. And then it says at the end of this chapter, and this is important, in verse 17, Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves so that they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Now, Jen in her teaching goes into some of the reasons for this in terms of maintaining the line and the, and the purity of that, and that's important. But I think another thing, an additional thing we should see here, is remember how we started. Abraham and Sarah are meant to be a blessing to the nations. This is central to who they are, that God blesses them and they bless the nations. And now they have come to the nations and they have brought a curse of infertility instead of blessing. They brought pain and judgment when they should have brought goodness. And I hate to say it, but again, I think we are often guilty of this too. We want so badly to be a light shining on a hill. We want to know how to be righteous, like Lot was not in the midst of an unrighteous place. Sometimes we forget that there are people outside of our homes and our churches that are actually the ones doing something right. And we're so afraid of them, we end up sinning. 
Maybe we're so certain that the world out there is too corrupt of a place for us or our children, so we fail to serve and witness to our neighbors. Maybe we're so afraid of the sinfulness of the culture around us that we fight back with our words and actions before they've even done anything. Maybe we miss opportunities to work together with our neighbors because like Abraham, we assume there is no fear of God in this place before we even look. In Abraham's fear of an unbelieving place, he acts like an unbelieving person. There's balance here. Lot's story tells us to be careful, to not get too comfortable with the surrounding world that we end up sacrificing other people for our own safety and comfort. But Abraham's story reminds us that God is working in places outside of our churches and our homes, and we should not be so afraid of the world that we end up harming it instead of blessing it. That's why I said hospitality unites these stories. Hospitality does not capitulate to a sinful culture. It invites people who are not like us into our lives. Hospitality refuses to let fear reign. Plates might break. People might bring weird foods we've never had before. We might say the wrong thing when we invite people who are not like us into our homes and our lives. But this was the truth that God told Abraham and that God told the people of God over and over and over again. You open your lives to others out of love and faithfulness to God. Just as God could say to Israel, I brought you out of Egypt and so you treat foreigners well, we have even greater reason to say Christ sacrificed everything on the cross for us. And so we should not be afraid of sacrificing on behalf of people who are in the crowd jeering us. What was true for Abraham is true for us. We are to be blessing and bring blessing and not let fear of those outside of our communities keep us from bringing that blessing. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this strange and difficult text and the way in which you help us see goodness still. I thank you for the way that you are consistently faithful and merciful. And I pray, God, that you would root fear out of our hearts and replace it with such firm trust and faith in you that we are willing to sacrifice, that we are willing to risk, that we are willing to say the wrong thing or mess up in order to be hospitable to those who are not only not like us, but those who might be in real need of protection and provision. I pray that would be true of us as a community um, now and in the future. It's in your name we pray. Amen.